Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650s, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. Former Norman stronghold was overshadowed by the new fortress at Les Andelis. It was clear to the French king that the time had come to settle with his rival. As soon as Christmas was over, on January the 13th, 1199, Philip and Richard met to thrash out the terms of a long-term truce. The papal legate Peter of Capua initially arbitrated the negotiations, hoping to reconcile the two kings and expedite the launch of a new crusade under a new pope, Innocent III. But it was clear during the bad-tempered discussions that Richard bore a great fury against the church for abandoning him during his imprisonment, and for sitting by while Philip threatened his absent lands. Richard sought from Philip a peace that would return every single possession that had been taken from him. Philip was prepared to agree, saving the return of the castle of Gisors, which he hoped to secure by a marriage alliance. Negotiations dragged on into March. At the end of March, although it was Lent and war-making was technically forbidden, a revolt led by the Count of Angoulême and the Viscount of Limoges broke out in the south. Richard went unhesitatingly to put it down, and led a company of men in attacking the castle of Chalut-Chabrol. It was not a large castle. Inside it were forty men and women, of whom only two were trained knights. They were barely equipped for battle or siege, lacking both numbers and munitions. As he examined the castle's defences, Richard would no doubt have considered that a short siege would suffice to break the defenders' resistance. Richard's army brought all the usual terrors. Men with swords and crossbows galloped through the countryside, burning the homes and farms of nearby villagers before laying siege to the castle itself. Engineers dug tunnels under the cover of crossbow fire, which flew at the battlements of the castle, keeping defenders pinned down, unable to disrupt the sapping of the walls on which they stood. The rumble of masonry occasionally imperiled those working closest to the walls, but they kept digging, weakening the will of the besieged as surely as they undermined the strength of the stone defences. For three days they dug and fired. For three days the small garrison resisted. For three days Richard camped near his men, watching over them, directing them, drawing on all his experience to bring the castle to quick submission. In the gloom of the evening of March 26th, he left his tent to inspect the state of the defences. He was armed with a crossbow, an oblong shield, and an iron helmet, but he wore no other armour. The battlements of the castle were all but deserted in the gathering dusk. But not entirely. As Richard looked up, he saw a flicker of movement. A lone body popped up above the ramparts. It was a man later identified by the contemporary English chronicler Ralph de Disseto as one Peter Basilius. He was carrying a crossbow in one hand and a frying-pan from the castle's kitchens in the other as a makeshift shield. Brave in the face of unbeatable odds, the hapless Basilius loosed a single bolt in the direction of Richard's party. Richard was used to being in the line of fire. From Jaffa to Gaillon he had stood before hostile forces, trusting in his training, his instinctive feel for the battlefield, and the professionalism of the men around him. 
He had led men from the front many times before, and dodged countless arrows and bolts. He lived for the thrill of battle, and took deep pleasure in the noble pursuit of combat. Pathetic as his enemy was here, Richard was filled with admiration for the makeshift courage he saw above him. Characteristically confident under attack, he took time to applaud the indomitable defender before ducking out of the way of his bolt. But the delay was fatal. Whether Richard's reactions were slowing fractionally, or pride finally conspired against him, he failed to move in time. The bolt struck him in his left shoulder, and sank to a depth of around six inches. Richard did not cry out. He was a king and a leader. He could not afford to offer succor to the castle's defenders, or to worry the men around him. With a wooden shaft sticking out from his shoulder, he simply returned to the royal tent. When he arrived, it was dark. Richard would have been in considerable pain. The bolt had not severed a major blood vessel, and had missed his heart, but it was deep in his body nevertheless. Richard tried to yank the bolt from his shoulder, but as he did so the wooden shaft snapped, leaving the barbed point buried deep inside his body. Professional help was required. A surgeon was summoned. Great care was taken to keep the king's injury a secret. By firelight the surgeon tried to take out the wicked shard of metal from the royal shoulder. He dug deep into flesh, widening the wound, searching for the embedded barb. Eventually the bolt was removed, and the wound was bandaged up. But a darkened medieval battlefield was no place to perform surgery. Soon the wound festered, and during the days that followed, infection set in. Sickness began to spread throughout Richard's upper body. It was clear what lay ahead. Medieval soldiers did not recover from infected wounds so close to their hearts, and Richard was a soldier to the last. He remained in his tent, where his condition continued to be a closely guarded secret. He did not leave his quarters, and only four of his fellow soldiers were allowed to enter his presence. The chronicler Ralph of Coggeshall heard rumours that during his confinement Richard ignored the advice of his doctors, and behaved without control. Later another legend of the Lionheart sprung up, to the effect that the king spent his final days on earth having sex with local youths. It is unlikely that this was true, for Richard was dying of gangrene. One of the few people to be told about the severity of the king's sickness was his mother, Eleanor of Aquitaine. As Chalut Chabrol finally fell, a messenger was dispatched to Fontevraud to tell the aging duchess that her favourite son was gravely ill. Eleanor rode hard to his side, and was at the camp when on April 6th, 1199, Richard the Lionheart forgave the brave defender with the frying-pan and crossbow, and died. His heart was taken to Rouen, to be interred next to his brother Henry. His body was taken to Fontevraud, along with the crown and the splendid costume that Richard had been so impatient about at his coronation. He was buried at his father's feet, the exact spot where his journey as a king had begun. Lackland Supreme A dark spring night was settling in on Saturday, April 10th, 1199. Hubert Walter, Archbishop of Canterbury, was in Rouen preparing himself for bed. The next day was Palm Sunday, the celebration of Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. This was a time of contemplation for England's primate, a hero of the Holy Land, and a man who had come close to the city of Jerusalem himself. It was late when a visitor, William Marshall, was announced. He wanted urgently to see the Archbishop. It was a visit that Walter had been dreading for days. The two men were party to secret information. They, along with a tiny handful of trusted servants, knew that King Richard had been badly injured at Chalut-Chabrol. They had been waiting for news of his condition, hoping against the worst, but preparing for it too. Walter knew that for Marshall to visit in person at such an hour could not bode well. Marshall's biography records the words they exchanged that evening. "'Come now,' said Walter as Marshall approached, "'give me your news.' But his face must have betrayed extreme misgiving. "'I can tell you it's not good, my dear lord,' said Marshall. 
King Richard was dead. It was disastrous news for both men. As news leaked across the continent of the shocking death of the forty-one-year-old king, his subjects and rival leaders braced themselves for massive upheavals, knowing that the political map of Europe would begin rapidly to change. So much of the Plantagenet resurgence of the late 1190s was owed directly to Richard's personality, his leadership, and his mastery over Philip II of France. Richard's burning mission, to fight until Philip was put out of every quarter of his empire, was the cornerstone of his kingship, and the thread that bound all those who followed him. The truce between the houses of Plantagenet and Capet was as much a personal settlement between the two kings as a political settlement between two great powers. With Richard gone, all this was thrown into jeopardy. As Archbishop Walter put it that night, chewing over the consequences of the dramatic news, "'All prowess is extinguished!' The two men talked together as the night grew late. Richard's death made no sense. Had he been punished for his greed, for lust? Was God angry? It was impossible to know. The archbishop and the king's loyal knight could only imagine what the future might hold. Richard had died without a legitimate heir, and was estranged from his wife at the time of his death. He had been entirely reckless with regard to the future, making no clear provision for the succession during his lifetime. This was even more problematic because, unlike his father, Richard had inherited the Plantagenet lands en masse. It looked more now like one large imperial patrimony than it had in the 1180s, when Aquitaine, Anjou, and the Anglo-Norman realm might have been split up among different claimants. Since Richard's crusading days, it had generally been accepted that if this empire was going to be inherited by one man, there were two possible candidates, his brother John and Arthur of Brittany, his twelve-year-old nephew. Early in his kingship, Richard had favoured Arthur as heir, but according to the information that reached the chronicler Roger of Howden, he named John as his successor on his deathbed. It is quite likely that this decision was made on Eleanor of Aquitaine's advice. To Marshall and Walter, however, the issue of right in the succession was far from clear. As they stayed up into the night, deep in political speculation, Marshall, a feudal statesman of indissoluble loyalty to the Plantagenets, argued in favour of John. Walter disagreed. Marshall was of the view that Arthur lacked good advice. He called him unapproachable and overbearing. "'If we call him to our side, he will do us harm and damage,' Marshall said. "'He does not like those in our realm. My advice is that he should never be king. Instead, consider the claim of John. He seems to be the nearest in line to claim the land of his father as well as that of his brother.' This was hardly an incontestable claim. Did the son of a king's older brother— in Arthur's case this was Henry II's third son, Geoffrey, trumped the claim of a king's younger brother. Lawyers and writers disagreed. Customs varied across Europe, and quite frequently the issue was still decided according to the personal suitability of the individuals concerned. Certainly Hubert Walter could not give an irrefutable defence of Arthur's claim in the dead of that April night— but he gave Marshall one dire warning, based not on the law of succession, but on his assessment of John himself. "'This much I can tell you,' he said. "'You will never come to regret anything you did as much as what you're doing now.' John did not inspire confidence. This was perhaps his defining characteristic. Neither princes nor bureaucrats were fully inclined to believe him or to believe in him, and frequently this was with good reason. His career up to that point was pockmarked by ugly instances of treachery, frivolity, and disaster, from his earliest unwitting involvement in dynastic politics as John Lackland, his father's coddled favourite, until his covetous behaviour during his brother's long captivity. John's behaviour during the latter years of Richard's reign had been broadly unimpeachable, but it did not take much to recall how appallingly he had acted while Richard had been out of the country. He had rebelled against Richard's appointed ministers, interfered with ecclesiastical appointments, undermined Richard's justiciar William Longchamp, 
encouraged an invasion from Scotland, spread rumours that his brother was dead, entreated the King of France to help him secure the English throne for himself, paid homage to Philip for his brother's continental lands, and given him almost the whole duchy of Normandy, attempted to bribe the German emperor to keep his brother in prison, and was almost single-handedly responsible for the feeble state in which Richard had found the Plantagenet lands and borders on his eventual release from captivity. Unsurprisingly, then, John was still thought by many to be untrustworthy. Contemporary writers commented on his unpleasant demeanour, in dark contrast with his brother's brilliant glow of chivalry. Like Richard and Henry II, John was already known for his tough financial demands and fierce temper. He was thought to be cruel, and he tended to make vicious threats against those who thwarted him. Unlike Henry and Richard, however, he was also weak, indecisive, and mean-spirited. Several writers noted that John and his acolytes sniggered when they heard of others' distress. Very early in his life he was thought by the northern English chronicler William of Newborough to be nature's enemy. On his brother's unexpected death in 1199, John could not be at all certain of a smooth accession. He knew that Philip II would support Arthur's rival claim. John's first action, therefore, was to seize the royal treasure at the castle of Chinon. He was right to do so, for as he rode on to visit his brother's tomb at Fontevraud and pay his respects to his widow, the winds of opinion in the Plantagenet heartlands were billowing behind Arthur. On Easter Sunday the barons of Anjou, Maine, and Touraine, the beating heart of the empire created by Henry II, declared loyalty to Arthur at a stroke cutting off Normandy from Poitou and the rest of Aquitaine. At Le Mans, his father's birthplace and dearest city, John was turned away by the garrison and nearly trapped by Philip's and Arthur's armies. Only in Rouen, where the rules of ducal inheritance were more clearly in favour of a brother over a nephew, did John meet with something like a welcome. On April 25, 1199, he was invested as Duke of Normandy with a crown of golden roses placed on his head. This, at least, was a triumph for to lose Normandy would have been a sorry failure indeed. The redoubtable Eleanor, now seventy-five years old, led the movement to secure her son as heir in Aquitaine. She had despaired of John's behaviour in the early eleven-nineties, but was ultimately loyal to her children. The wife of two kings, she would do all in her power to see to it that she was the mother of three. Now she deployed an army under the famous mercenary captain Mercadier, harrying forces loyal to Arthur of Brittany, and helping secure John's succession in the face of stern opposition. In England, meanwhile, Marshall turned his belief in John's legitimacy into action. He sent envoys to convince the English barons to take an oath of fealty. It should be obvious, they argued, to those who had interests on both sides of the Channel, that John, already invested as Duke of Normandy, was a better choice to safeguard their positions. So with the support of Hubert Walter and Geoffrey Fitzpeter, the justiciar, John was accepted as king. But as Marshall, so ardent a supporter in that first night's conversation later recalled, "'Neither the Gascons nor the men of Limousin, the men of Poitou or Anjou, or the Bretons agreed to it all, for they had no love for his overlordship.' John Softsword. In mid-January 1200, the old King of France met the new King of England on the border between their lands. There were only two years between them in age, but they were separated by a world of experience. John, who was now thirty-two, had been a king for eight months. Philip II, by contrast, had ruled France for just short of twenty years. Christmas had passed, and a truce that had been arranged to discourage warfare during the holy season had held. Now came the first meeting between the two kings since John's accession. They talked for a long time about the truce they were making, and embraced warmly. It must have felt to John as though he were being pulled into the warm fold of kingship. But Philip must have known that here at last was a Plantagenet rival whom he could hope to dominate his experience with John ran deep. 
They had gone to war beside and against each other already, but never on equal terms. During their long history together, John had always been the child, the younger brother, the supplicant, Philip the king and the judge. The deals John had been ready to make to feel the weight of a crown on his head while his brother had been in captivity had suggested that John hankered for power, but had a stunted idea of what wielding authority truly entailed. This was a man who would blink first in a negotiation, and who would allow his prerogatives to be chipped away without a serious fight. John had been crowned king by Hubert Walter at Westminster Abbey eight months earlier, on May 25, 1199. Little time was afforded for a magnificent ceremony, as had been the case in the past. The new king had been showered with gifts and reverence, but the whole thing smacked of a necessary formality, rather than a pageant to be revelled in. John could not, nor did he wish to, stay very long in his new kingdom. The anointing and ceremony were precursors to a difficult defence of Normandy, Anjou, and the soft points of his new dominion's borders. Within a fortnight of his coronation, John had embarked for the continent. The situation in Normandy was already urgent, and he needed allies. Philip had backed Arthur of Brittany, and Anjou, Maine, and Touraine were all under attack from the combined French-Breton forces. The middle swath of the Plantagenet territories, which joined the Duchy of Normandy with that of Aquitaine, risked being overrun. Soon after arriving at Dieppe, John had renewed the alliances Richard had so carefully cultivated with the Counts of Flanders and Boulogne. That autumn he marched against Philip in Anjou. Here John managed to achieve a great coup. William de Roche, the most powerful man in the county, who was leading the rebellion there on behalf of Arthur's claim, suddenly switched sides. Messages of support for the new English king had filtered through from both the Emperor Otto IV and from Pope Innocent III, and it seemed to de Roche that the tide was now in John's favour. When de Roche clashed with the French king over a castle in Maine, a convenient rift was opened. Desroches met John in Le Mans to formalise his change of allegiance. He brought with him a brilliant tribute, Arthur of Brittany and his mother Constance ready to make their peace. In theory this should have removed Philip's reason to fight, but that would depend on John's ability to make peace with his nephew. He could not. Constance and Arthur approached John's court with more trepidation than Desroches did. They simply did not trust him to do right by them. On September 22nd they went through the formalities of official submission, but as night fell they absconded and fled back to Philip's court. This, then, was the situation when John and Philip met on their borders in January 1200. Arthur had submitted to John, but was in Philip's hands, a latent threat. Furthermore, many of John's allies were abandoning him for the Fourth Crusade, the Counts of Flanders, Blois and Perche, and the Marquis of Montferrat, all announced during a tournament in Champagne in November 1199 that they were taking the cross. Baldwin of Flanders had doubled the insult by subsequently negotiating peace with Philip, removing John's ability to fight on two fronts in Normandy. And so, five months after their January embrace, John and Philip put their seals to the Treaty of Le Goulet, ostensibly cementing a permanent peace. Looking back on the Treaty of Le Goulet, the chronicler Gervais of Canterbury recalled the gossip of pilgrims and traders. John's detractors, Gervais remembered, nicknamed him Soft Sword. Gervais himself disagreed, thinking that war-weariness and financial exhaustion had made peace prudent, but there was no doubt that John's concessions at the very outset of his reign struck some as ill-advised. Even as the treaty was sealed, one northern French writer, Andreas of Marchienne, looked with contempt on John's sluggish pursuit of a war that Richard had fought with manly vigour. Andreas was of the view that at Le Goulet John had signed away his right to the castles for which the whole war had been fought. Philip had agreed to recognize John as lord of most of the continental lands held by his brother and father, but the peace terms were skewed heavily toward France. The whole of the Norman Vexin, with the exception of Richard's massive Chateau Gaillard, 
was to remain French. So too would Evreux, another vital border county between France and Normandy, and Issoudun, Grasset, and Bourges in Berry. These may have seemed like small sacrifices to John, but as Richard and Henry II had realized, it was sometimes from such small concessions that great troubles arose. Ever since 1156, when Henry II first paid homage to Louis VII, the Plantagenet kings had accepted that in theory they held their continental lands from the French crown, but this had remained broadly a formality. With the Treaty of Le Goulet, John turned it into feudal reality. In return for Philip's acknowledgment of his rights, John agreed to pay 20,000 marks as a succession duty. This was a vitally important concession, formalizing a relationship of dependency. Philip also littered the Treaty of Le Goulet with instructions appropriate to a more imperious lord-vassal relationship. John was forced to renounce his alliances with Flanders and Boulogne, not just as a gesture of peace, but as a recognition that they were first and foremost Capetian vassals, and loyal to the French crown before the English. Only Aquitaine, still technically held by John as his mother's heir, was excluded from the treaty. There were many good reasons for John to have conceded so much at Le Goulet. His brother had subjected his realm to some of the most severe financial demands in its history. How long would heavy taxes levied on barons and church alike be sustainable? How many more Chateau Gaillard would be required to keep the French king out of the Vexin, a small strip of land with more strategic than economic importance? How long could England bankroll the mercenaries necessary to keep Normandy on a permanent defensive footing? How could John hope to sustain his brother's system of alliances when all around him friends were disappearing on crusade? The tempting answer to all these questions lay in the agreement John sealed in May 1200. England's new king had the appetite for power, but not for a fight. Thus, in the first five months of the thirteenth century, John granted away a position that had taken his brother, father, and grandfather almost one hundred years to establish. It would be easy to dismiss the wags overheard by Gervase of Canterbury who laughed at John's soft sword, they knew not the troubles of a king, but it would soon be clear that much greater trouble lay ahead. Triumph and Catastrophe On July 29, 1202, a large party of knights rode noisily up to the walls of Mirbeau Castle, just south of Chinon. There were more than 250 of them, a substantial force, with an intimidating purpose. They had come to capture Eleanor of Aquitaine. The old queen was seventy-eight, old enough she might have reasoned not to be troubled by the depredations of enemy armies. But below her, amid the melee of riveted helmets, chain-mail armour, crossbows, swords, and lances, she could pick out a familiar face— that of her sixteen-year-old grandson, Arthur of Brittany. The adventures of her life were not yet over. Arthur's reasons for wishing to capture his grandmother were simple. She was a valuable prisoner in the war for succession, which he continued to wage against his uncle. Elsewhere among the besiegers was Hugh de Lusignan, who had reason to hate Arthur's rival with a passion— Two years previously, King John had swept abruptly into Angoulême, the county that neighboured Hughes, and stolen his young bride, Isabella of Angoulême, from under his nose. Isabella had been betrothed to Hugh in a pact that was designed to unite two of the most important families in Aquitaine, but in August 1200 John had seized the twelve-year-old girl and married her himself in Bordeaux. It was a shameful episode for the Lusignan, which pushed them into open opposition and hostility to his rule. Since then, John had done all in his power to provoke the Lusignan family, and remind them that he had sided with their rival, the Counts of Angoulême. He had taken countless opportunities in the two years since his marriage to put the Lusignan in their place, attacking their men and castles in counties as far apart as La Marche and Eux, and summoning them to his feudal court to demand, unsuccessfully, that they fight a judicial duel against his royal champions. John's high-handed behaviour had driven them into the willing arms of Philip II, 
who spent the first two years of the thirteenth century amassing a large and powerful army. By the spring of 1202 he was ready to turn it against King John. Appealing to the Treaty of Le Goulet, which had established John as his feudal vassal, Philip had decreed that the English king should forfeit all his continental possessions. He paired the Lusignans up with Arthur, whom he now knighted, betrothed to his young daughter Marie, and acknowledged as Duke of Brittany and Aquitaine, and Count of Anjou and Maine. Then he sent the Lusignans and his new protégé off to attack John's lands in Anjou. Eleanor, who was not well, tracked political developments with alarm from her sickbed. It did not please her to realize that she would be a target for her grandson's new friends. And sure enough, they had come to find her at Fontevraud, the lavish monastery that served as her retirement home. She had been there for a year or so, recuperating since completing the final diplomatic mission of her career, a long journey to northern Spain, where she had selected from her daughter Eleanor's children with Alfonso VIII of Castile a wife for Philip II's son Louis, Princess Blanche of Castile. When she was given notice of the approach of Arthur's and Hugh de Lusignan's forces in advance, she fled Fontevraud for Poitiers, but they caught up with her at Mirbeau. Her one hope, as hostile knights stalked the castle walls, was that rescue might come from the north. On her flight from Fontevraud, Eleanor had found time to compose an urgent note to John, who was in Normandy, organizing the defense of his frontier castles from Philip's armies. It would take a miracle for him to reach her before the castle's defences fell, but miracles were all that Eleanor had. As his mother surveyed the enemy army with trepidation at Mirbeau, John, using recruiting officers in England, was in Le Mans assembling a mercenary army. Throughout the summer his army of paid cutthroats had been swelling. Now, in late July, it was sufficient to the task of taking on Philip in the north and Arthur and the Lusignan in the south. It was always remarked of Henry II, usually by his exasperated enemies, that he was capable of popping up like a jack-in-the-box wherever and whenever he was least expected, no matter where in his empire he might be. It was this superhuman ability to flog his horse and his armies at speed across the vast Plantagenet territories that had lain at the heart of his success. Now, summoning up the spirit of his father, John travelled the eighty miles that separated Le Mans from Mirbeau in less than forty-eight hours, a punishing pace even for lightly armed men. They arrived at Mirbeau on the evening of July 31st to find that Arthur and his men had already forced their way into the walled town. Clearly they expected an assault from John because they had blocked up all but one of the town's gates with great mounds of earth. Securely they awaited the king's arrival, confident in their multitude of proven knights and sergeants, wrote Ralph of Coggeshall but their confidence was misplaced. As John raced from Le Mans, he collected William des Roches, who had defected to his side from Arthur's camp in 1200. Des Roches struck a deal with the king. As Seneschal of Anjou, the king's chief administrative officer in the region, he knew Mirbeau well. He agreed to lead the attack on the town and castle, on the understanding that if Arthur was captured, des Roches would have a guiding voice in his treatment. It was a deal John was happy to make. As they camped before the earthed-up walls of the town, Des Roches planned an attack for daybreak. At dawn, Hugh de Lusignan's brother Geoffrey was enjoying a breakfast of roasted pigeons when a vicious assault on the one working gate to the city took him by surprise. John's men surrounded the town, and before long they had battered down the gate. Heavy street fighting ensued, led by the indomitable Des Roches, who lost three horses from under him as he led charge after charge against the town gates. Seeing the strength and unusual vigour of their opponents, the rebels fled for the safety of the castle, but they were unable to hold out. Under Des Roches's ferocious leadership, John's men completed a stunning rout, and Eleanor was freed from the castle, and told that Arthur, Hugh, and Geoffrey Lusignan, and two hundred and fifty-two of the worthiest knights had been captured. It was the most complete and striking victory won by forces under an English king since Richard's relief of Jaffa in 1192. 
At a stroke, John had decapitated the resistance in Aquitaine and captured Arthur. John's illustrious prisoners were paraded, heavily manacled, through the streets along the road to Normandy, a public warning of the consequences of rebellion. Arthur and Geoffrey Lusignan were taken to Falaise in Normandy, and Hugh de Lusignan was kept in solitary confinement in Caen under heavy guard. Many of the rest of the prisoners were shipped to English strongholds such as Corfe Castle, the bleak fortress that loomed over the Purbeck Hills in Dorset. Their imprisonment would be miserable and lonely. Arthur's incarceration was especially grim. Falaise, a large Norman castle with a square keep, was the birthplace of William the Conqueror and closely connected with the Duchess' former capital in Caen. Behind the castle walls, the sixteen-year-old Arthur was kept in ghastly conditions. The well-bred could generally expect less punitive conditions than the poor and indigent, but medieval prisons as a rule were bleak, dangerous, and lonely. And John's prisons were more dire than that. According to William Marshall, a connoisseur of the rules of war and chivalry, John kept his prisoners in such a horrible manner and such abject confinement that it seemed an indignity and a disgrace to all those with him who witnessed his cruelty. Arthur was a high-grade feudal pawn. His captivity under John became one of the most notorious political imprisonments of the thirteenth century. With John still childless, Arthur was heir presumptive to the English throne, and his claim to the Plantagenet's continental domains rivalled that of John himself. He came from the wild Celtic fringe of mainland France, an area that had claimed to be the birthplace of the legendary King Arthur, after whom the young duke was named. Both his status and his closeness in blood to John ought to have afforded him a certain degree of protection. Knowing his value to Philip, Arthur must have calculated that his uncle could not do him any serious harm without suffering severe consequences. But John did not play by the rules of the time. Despite his success at Mirbeau, he was growing ever more obsessed by the notion that treachery lurked in every corner of his empire. "'The king's pride and arrogance increased,' wrote Marshall. "'They so blurred his vision that he could not see reason.' We do not know how much access Arthur had to news of John's actions during his early months of captivity, but if any word slipped through, he would have known that as he festered at John's displeasure, the whole of Normandy was rotting around him, riven with treason and discontent. Everywhere it was suddenly remembered that Normans and Angevins were supposed to be enemies. The loyalty that Richard had inspired by his personal leadership was ebbing fast, and support for John's rule was crumbling. Though Arthur was walled off from the world, the effects of his imprisonment spread far and wide. Grumblings grew that John was unchivalrous in his treatment of his captives. Certainly he was behaving badly toward his allies. In September 1202, William des Roches, who had led the storming of Mirabeau on condition that he should have a say over Arthur's fate, was cut out. "'The king never kept his agreement with the Lord des Roches,' wrote Marshall, "'and as a consequence of this ill-treatment, Des Roches later crossed over to the King of France's side. The King made a major blunder in not trusting him. Losing the support of William Des Roches was a bad mistake, made worse when Des Roches took another valuable ally from John's side. Emery de Thouars, whose support had only barely been kept by the determined agency of Eleanor of Aquitaine. De Thouars and Des Roches were not natural allies but John contrived to unite two enemies in common opposition to him. Together the two men began raiding Anjou. A month after they abandoned the English king, they led the capture of Angers itself. John clung on in Anjou until December 1202, but it was impossible to resist the surge of rebellious defections to Philip's cause. Piece by piece, turn by turn, Anjou was wrenched from John's hands, until all that was left of the Plantagenet heartland was a handful of loyal castles. As Anjou teetered on the brink, the rebellion spread to Aquitaine. Early in 1203 John released the Lusignans from prison. He hoped that if he offered them the hand of friendship he had so haughtily failed to extend two years previously, they would rally to his cause in northern Aquitaine. They did not. 
John had taken plenty of hostages as guarantees of his subjects' good behavior, but on release they immediately rebelled against his rule. John had neither the feel for the ways of the South, nor the long experience necessary to keep the duchy in order, and its most powerful residents neither feared nor trusted him. By the end of 1203, John's worries were spiraling out of control. He saw his marches and land getting worse by the day as a result of war, and Frenchmen who had no love for him and pillaged his land, with the connivance of the turncoats who had gone over to their side, wrote Marshall. When he retreated to Normandy in December, John garrisoned his castles with mercenaries, further alienating the local population, as the same mercenaries plundered local towns and monasteries for supplies and riches. The more John lost friends, the crueler his rule became. When twenty-five prisoners tried to break out of Corfe prison in England, they were surrounded and had their food supply cut off. Almost all of them starved to death rather than yield to the king. John was far away from Corfe at the time, but the atrocity was nonetheless done in his name. Early in 1203, John sent instructions to the royal servant Hubert de Burr, who was serving as Arthur's jailer, demanding that he should blind and castrate his prisoner. Fortunately for Arthur, de Burr felt a pang of conscience, and could not carry out the grisly sentence on the sixteen-year-old, who pleaded for pity. Fearful at having disobeyed the king's instructions, de Burr then leaked word that Arthur had died of natural causes. The Bretons burned with rage at the idea that their scion had been murdered, and swore retribution. As soon as the reaction became clear, de Burr tried to backtrack, revealing that Arthur was alive after all. But it was too late, the damage had been done. Attacks against John in Brittany had been given a firm moral justification. How anyone could have believed that Arthur would serve John's purposes better if he were blind, castrated, or dead is uncertain, but logical thought was not always a priority for the English king. John was almost frantic with worry. As Anjou fell to his enemies in January 1203, he nearly lost his queen Isabella when rebels surrounded her at Chinon Castle. She had to be rescued by a band of mercenaries. In the spring of 1203 John was overrun. Philip and his allies held Brittany and dominated almost all of Anjou, Maine, and Touraine. The freed Lusignan pressed John's forces deep into Poitou, where his mother was now too frail to organize the defenses. The French hammered relentlessly at the border fortresses of Normandy, a duchy in which it was said that no man could be trusted any longer to stay true to his word for even a week. All around, allies were scuttling for cover. John was deserted by the Count of Alençon, who abandoned him for Philip's cause two days after dining with John. Count Robert behaved disgracefully, for after the king had given him some of his wealth and kissed him on the mouth, the very same day the count laid him low, wrote Marshall. John was paralyzed by the immensity of the task and his own indecision. He still held Arthur, although more by luck than by judgment. He had his throne in England, and a reasonable grip on Lower Aquitaine, but nothing else was certain. John could neither direct an effective resistance nor inspire anyone else to do the same. All he could do was sit behind his ever-receding lines and hope for the best. Lackland Undone it was the Thursday before Easter, a mournful time for all Christians. King John was drunk and angry. As he sat down to his dinner in Rouen, he was surrounded by invisible enemies and oppressed by dark thoughts. He trusted almost no one, and could not ride safely around his own duchy without fear of ambush or attack. Also in Rouen that night was Arthur of Brittany. Arthur was not enjoying a debauched dinner that evening. He had been transferred from Falaise after the debacle of his rumoured mutilation, and had languished in a dungeon in Rouen ever since. William de Briouze, an immensely powerful and wealthy nobleman whose estates stretched across the Welsh borders, had escorted the prisoner to his king. Briouze was a close ally of John's. It was he who had captured Arthur at Mirbeau. Knowing the mood of his king when he delivered up the young duke, he claimed that he would no longer answer for Arthur's safety. 
Briuse's fears were well founded. After dinner on Maundy Thursday, John's drunkenness took a turn for the belligerent. We will never know what he was thinking. The best witness we have claims he was possessed by the devil. Certainly he must have appeared a terrifying spectre to all who saw him as he made his way drunk to Arthur's cell. Although we cannot be totally certain of the facts of that terrible night, it is highly likely that John entered the prisoner's cell and killed the young man with his own hands, before tying a heavy stone to his nephew's lifeless body and throwing it into the river Seine, where it was later retrieved by a fisherman. The nuns of Notre-Dame-des-Prés afforded Arthur a Christian burial in secret, for fear of John's wrath. If it was possible to visit greater sacrilege on the festival of Easter, then no English king ever did. But John did not appear to have much remorse. In fact, he seems to have taken comfort from his nephew's death. He sent a letter to his mother soon afterward, with a cryptic message containing the words, The grace of God is even more with us now than the messenger can tell you. But John was wrong. The grace of God was about to abandon him, with disastrous consequences. Normandy, Britain, and Greater France had been swirling with rumours of Arthur's fate for months. The news of his death would not become fully accepted at Philip's court until 1204, but even while it was only a foul rumour, the Duke's murder placed John in an impossible position. In all subsequent negotiations with Philip II, the French king had a trump card. No peace until you first produce Arthur, was the refrain. And now, even if he had wanted peace, John could do no such thing. As the summer of 1203 unfolded, Philip took advantage of John's perilous position, trapped in Normandy between angry Bretons and rebellious Poitevin in the south, while the French king's own armies pushed in from the east. John continued to base himself in Rouen, and sallied back and forth between the city and the eastern front. At neither was the news ever encouraging. Philip gambled throughout Plantagenet territories as he pleased. He was able to take a boat all the way down the Loire, the artery through what should have been the heart of Plantagenet holdings, in perfect safety. In such a climate, Norman morale began to dissolve. Castles along the border capitulated as soon as Philip approached. John lost Conche, then Vaudreuil, with barely a whisper. The knights garrisoning the latter disgracefully did not even bother to mount a proper defence. The Norman defences were eroded with the ease of melting sandcastles. At the end of August the French army rumbled toward the greatest castle of them all, Chateau Gaillard. Richard's prized citadel was built to be unbreachable, but now Philip's forces massed around the fortress, which towered on an enormous cliff, with the Seine sweeping around a bend below. They blockaded the river, hoping to starve the enemy into submission. One night at the end of summer, John attempted to break the blockade with a flotilla of supply boats and an accompanying commando force of mercenaries. Led by William Marshall, John's men attacked in the warmth of the late summer night, but luck cruelly deserted him. As the rowers struggled with the current of the Seine, they lost step with the land army on the river bank, and the massive invasion fleet was picked off in staggered waves by the French defenders until the river ran red in the darkness. This was the end of John's serious attempts to save Chateau Gaillard. The siege lasted until March 1204, but John did not try to break it again. Instead, he made a violent but useless attempt to distract Philip on the Breton front, burning down the town of Dole. But the overriding sense during the autumn of 1203 was that John's grip on power was unravelling. Gossip spread that he spent all his time in bed with his teenage wife, dismissing demands to raise himself for a proper defence of Norman independence with the insouciant words, "'Let be, let be, whatever he takes now I will one day recover.' William Marshall watched bewildered as the king took to riding aimlessly about the countryside, disappearing from his court without a word, and touring the back roads of his own duchy for fear of meeting traitors on the highways. When Christmas 1203 approached, John left Normandy for the last time. Despite having promised that he would stay in his duchy and fight on for a year, 
in early December he made private preparations to send his baggage train back to England. Before dawn on December 5th, he rode hard from Rouen to Bayeux via Caen. As he set sail for Barfleur Harbour with his queen beside him, John passed the rock that had killed the drunken revellers aboard his great-uncle William the Etheling's white ship in 1120. That tragedy had been the catalyst for a bloody civil war in England for more than half a century of Plantagenet dominance over France, from Rouen to Toulouse. Now, as John's more sober crew steered clear of danger and pulled strongly toward Portsmouth, the window of mastery was closing. Behind him in Normandy a few remaining loyalists fought on, hoping to hold out against Philip's relentless advance. John promised to return to their side, but he never did. Of the vast dominions conquered by Henry II and defended by Richard I, a ragged core remained. Barring isolated castles and pockets of loyalists, John had lost most of Normandy, Anjou, Maine, and Touraine. He was the most despised man in Brittany. He retained nominal control in Poitou and the rest of Aquitaine only because of the residual authority that the nobles of the duchy felt toward his mother. To reconquer what had been lost from a resurgent, vastly enriched French empire under a king who had handsomely earned his nickname Philip Augustus was a task that would have daunted John's father and brother at the height of their considerable powers. John himself was totally inadequate for the task. The best he could do was flee the embers of his collapsed continental empire with his tail between his legs. It was a dismal way to go. Part 3. Age of Opposition, 1204-1263 when a bad man has the advantage, cruelty and outrage are the consequences. William Marshall Salvaging the Wreck England froze. In 1204 the country was struck by a cruel winter that suspended life and crushed hope. In London the Thames filled with ice so thick that men and women crossed from the south bank to the north on foot. In the fields the ground was so hard that it could not be ploughed until the end of March. Winter crops were destroyed by the cold, and vegetables were dug up by the starving when they were little more than seedlings. Prices soared as famine racked the country. The cost of oats rose tenfold in a year. There was widespread misery and suffering. The word on the street, recorded by Ralph of Coggeshall, was that God had punished King John by taking Normandy from him, and now the punishment was being extended to England. John had been marooned in the kingdom for a year. It had not been an easy time. Although his court was characteristically gay and lively, amused by indulgent feasting and the chivalrous entertainments of the young men who were known as the King's Bachelors, no one could fail to notice the hardship that lay all around. Rumours sped around that England was about to be invaded from France. It was said that Philip Augustus had found a convenient excuse to attack in the form of claims held by the Counts of Brabant and Boulogne to English lands that had been taken from them during Henry II's reign. Philip's appetite to crush the Plantagenets was thought to have no limits, John's ability to lose his inheritance to know no end. The threat of invasion was taken seriously. At a great council held in January 1205, John ordered every man over the age of twelve to enter into a sworn pact to defend the realm and preserve the peace. Failure to take the oath was to be counted by local constables as an admission of treachery. It was decreed that those who failed to act to defend the realm in the event of an invasion were to be punished by permanent disinheritance or perpetual slavery. In the freezing ports no ships were allowed to leave without written permission from the king. It is easy to understand why such fears took root. The collapse of the Plantagenet cause in France had been fast, dramatic, and painful. The Duchy of Normandy had not survived John's departure, and was now wholly Philip's, subsumed into the French kingdom for the first time in living memory. Anjou, Maine, and Touraine were all but gone, save for a few islands of loyalty at the fortresses of Chinon and Loche, 
held by good men surrounded by the French. The absent John's name was blackened in all parts of the French kingdom, as word began to circulate freely that Arthur of Brittany had been murdered. The situation was only a little better in Aquitaine. On April 1st, 1204, Eleanor of Aquitaine had died. She had lived to the extraordinary age of eighty, passing her dying moments at the Abbey of Fontevraud. To her last day, decrepit but defiant, she continued to buttress her son against impossible odds in her duchy, granting land and privileges to loyalists, and shoring up the Plantagenet cause, even while living as a habited nun. In accordance with the will she had made in 1202, Eleanor was buried beside her husband Henry II, and her favourite son Richard I, in the chapel at Fontevraud. Three members of the twelfth century's most charismatic and influential family now lay at rest together, at far greater peace in death than they ever were in life. The effigy on Eleanor's tomb still stands, as remarkable as the woman it immortalises. It was made to capture her in the magnificent prime of her adult life, her eyes closed, but a book open in her hands. It was, and still is, an image of great intellectual power. The nuns of Fontevraud paid Eleanor their respects in an obituary in which she was thanked for opulent gifts that she had made to the abbey, of gold, silver, jewels, and silk. The nuns also observed, somewhat obsequiously, that the queen had brightened the world with the splendour of her royal progeny. Given the careers of Henry the young king, Geoffrey Duke of Brittany, and John King of England, this was not wholly believable. Yet Eleanor had been a magnificent queen, whose influence had straddled three important reigns, and who had loved and guided her sons even when they behaved unwisely. Without his mother's guiding hand, John had little hope in Aquitaine. Already he had offended numerous barons by his marriage to Isabella of Angoulême, and his clumsy management of the Duchy's delicate politics. No right-minded lord there would pay homage to the English king as his mother's successor, for fear of dispossession by the ascendant King of France. As soon as Eleanor's death was known, many lords who had accepted her authority scrambled to make their peace with Philip. The French king advanced in triumph on Poitou, the county from which all Aquitaine was ruled, during the summer of 1204. Simultaneously John's brother-in-law Alfonso VIII of Castile invaded Gascony, in the southwest of Aquitaine, claiming that it was his by right of his wife, John's elder sister Eleanor. The last corner of the Plantagenet Empire in Europe creaked and crumbled. All this was dismaying for John. As winter's death gripped England in the first months of 1205, it looked very much as if all of the holdings his family had accumulated within the Kingdom of France might soon be gone. It was not enough simply to cower in England and defend the coast, and John must have realized that his public reputation, never particularly high, was at a nadir from which it might never recover if he did not act swiftly. He would have to make a stand. Men like the Melrose Chronicler were recording for posterity that he had ignominiously lost his castles and lands across the sea. So in the summer of 1205, as invasion fears began to subside, John began preparing for a huge assault on France— directed from two points of attack. A fleet from Portsmouth would beach on the Norman coast and reconquer the duchy from the west, while a second expedition from Dartmouth was to undertake a simultaneous advance on Poitou. This force would be commanded by John's illegitimate brother William Longespay, Earl of Salisbury, a man of about the same age as John, of high military reputation and experience, and a good friend of the king, with whom he passed many happy hours at the gaming-table. To effect his plans, John ordered the largest military mobilization since Richard had embarked on crusade. He would preside over a massive expansion of royal sea-power. Richard had been the first Plantagenet king to amass a significant English naval force, mobilizing large numbers of boats in 1190, building another seventy vessels to patrol the Seine in 1196, and founding Portsmouth as the great naval town to link England with Normandy. John now carried this further. Forty-five warships had been built to patrol England's coasts in 1203 to 1204. To expand the naval force any faster would require different means. 
In 1205, John simply seized all the shipping vessels that his constables deemed convertible for war. Even if a vessel was only large enough to carry a few horses, it was appropriated from its owner and amassed for the nascent Royal Navy. To fill the warships, there was a drive to muster men and materiel. Thousands upon thousands of horseshoes, nails, crossbow bolts, and arrowheads were struck. Pig carcasses were salted, and great sides of venison rumbled on carts down to the coast. The national coinage was recommissioned. New silver pennies, stamped with John's image, flooded the country. Everyone handling one in receipt of payment for a service rendered to the war effort would have looked upon his king's face, his hair curling about his ears, his beard cropped short, and his eyes, even in the simple minted likeness, bulging out at the holder, daring that person to defy him. Many of these coins were used to recruit mercenary soldiers, sailors and men-at-arms who were transported to the coast as midsummer approached. Perhaps a quarter of a year's revenue was pumped into military preparation, funding the vast human cargo that was loaded onto the great ships that floated in the Solent. According to the English chronicler Ralph of Coggeshall, it was the largest English army ever assembled, and the greatest collection of ships in a single English port. Here at last John was acting with purpose. If England was busy, however, it was not entirely united. Although John proved he could assemble a vast army, he was hamstrung by the changing mood.